Blaise Pascal was a 17th century genius. He mastered the subjects of mathematics, physics, philosophy, theology, and literature in less than 20 years. He wrote things in those 20 years that are still to this day considered classics. Laws of physics and math, philosophy, named after him. His father fell and broke his hip in 1646. And the two physicians caring for his dad were Catholics. Series of conversations with Blaise, they convinced him of the Catholic faith, Catholic tradition. He joined what was called the Jansenist movement in Catholicism in those days. It was a sect of Catholics that stuck close to Augustine's traditions of simplicity and humility. And he began to write things about God theologically. But in 1651, his father died and Blaise spiraled down. Same year, his sister, taking her third of the estate, left and went to a convent. That meant he was now alone. He was poor. His part of the estate almost all spent. He fell into depression. His heart was broken. His body was failing. He died at 39 years old. We don't know whether it was meningitis or spinal cancer or whether it was an ulceration in the stomach. We don't know for sure. But he lived too short of a life for someone that brilliant. But in 1654, something happened to this guy, this Catholic, this brilliant genius whom some have called one of the 10 brightest minds in the history of the world, any subject. And nobody knew what happened. They just knew that he'd changed till 10 years almost after the funeral servant girl was rifling through his personal belongings and noticed inside the lining of his jacket a piece of paper that he had written and sewn inside the lining of his jacket so he'd always have it with him. It read, the year of grace, 1654, Monday, November 23, Feast of St. Clement, Pope and Martyr, from about half past 10 until half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not God of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. Grandeur of the human soul. 
righteous father. The world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I left him. I fled him. I renounced him, crucified him. Let me never be separated from him. Complete submission to Jesus Christ and to my director. Eternally enjoy for a day's exercise on the earth. May I not forget your words. Amen. Pascal's second conversion illustrates beautifully that there are two ways to know God. One is intellectually, as an idea, a hypothesis, a theological proposition. When we pursue God like this, we start by asking questions, questions that come out of our own way of experiencing the world. We seek answers to the questions. Sometimes those answers surprise us. And while we cannot control the answers, we always control the questions. And that's a way of control. The other way of knowing God is to encounter him. It is to have him walk into the room, so to speak. And when this happens, we can still ask him questions, but now we have to answer his. He doesn't just have to answer ours. Now he is revealing parts of himself that he wants to reveal whether we have asked those questions or not. This is who he is. And so we are not in control. And the God we encounter sometimes is very different from the God of our minds. This is the woman at the well. Oh, this is a delightful story. You've heard the story, you said. I don't have to drag it out there then. I'll simply highlight a few things you may not know about the story that caused the discussion to just explode. First, it changes momentum. Jesus is in control, and then just as quickly she takes control, and then just as quickly Jesus turns the subject and takes control, but she tries to get control again. And it's fun, really, kind of as a linguist, to watch this dialogue between Jesus and a feisty woman. It goes like this. One day when Jesus left Samaria, 
or left uh, Judea. He wanted to go north, but he had to go through Samaria. Now, this is wrong. He did not have to go through Samaria. He could have done what every other Jew in his day did. They would have left the area. They would have gone east by the Jordan River and then north. Joanne showed you the map a couple weeks ago. Then they would have gone north and then they would have cut in. It would be like saying, I have to go to Marion downtown, but the way to get there is to take 38th Street out to 400, take 400 north, hit 18, and go all the way in. Because if I go straight up Nebraska, I'm going to go through some of the hardest sections in Mary. You understand what happened was Jesus had to go down Nebraska. And if I'm reading the text right, he got there first. The disciples had gone in to find food. And he sat down by a well and he waits. Pretty soon about noon, a woman comes walking to the well. Women did all the carrying of water back then. Where the heck were the men? I just, what? What kind of, all right, I digress. She stays at the proverbial 20 feet. She won't go near him. Wells are private settings. Jesus looks up and says, will you give me something to drink? Now, most women would say no. She says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How is it that you ask me for a drink. For the Bible says Jews and Samaritans do not associate with one another. This is a long and storied history. In 722 BC, when the Assyrians came into northern Israel, they scattered a lot of people. They migrated foreigners into the area. It's all in first in uh, 2 Kings, I think, chapter 17, 18. And the people that started to settle in this area called Samaria were what Jews considered half-breeds. They were idol worshipers. They worshiped Yahweh, the same God Jews did, but they also worshiped other gods. And so there's this long rivalry between Jews and Samaritans. They don't, they hate each other. You don't know of a rivalry in America today as intense as that rivalry, as long as that rivalry, 750 years of fighting. You burn our temple, we sneak in at night and scatter dead bones of animals in your temple. This goes back and forth for 750 years. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How is it that you can ask me for a drink? Watch the conversation change. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who asked you, you would ask him and he would give you rivers of living water. She knows full well what he means. Living water is moving water. 
It's flowing water. It's water that comes from divine origins. It's water from a spring. It's water from a brook or a river. It's not water in a receptacle or in a well or a pool. It moves. Living water, said the rabbis, is water used for cleansing. Surely she knew this. She said, sir, you have nothing to draw within the wells deep. Are you, fa- are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? He drank from it himself as did his sons. And he also watered his herds. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will thirst again. But everyone who drinks from the water I give him will never thirst. Fact, it will become inside of him or her a spring bubbling up into eternal life, infecting everything about them. She says, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back here. Watch the conversation change. When it moves from prejudice to cleansing, watch the conversation change. He says, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. He says, you're right. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man with whom you are now living is not your husband. Everything you've said is just right. She says, huh, you must be a prophet. Samaritans only believed in one prophet, only one. He'd follow Moses. He'd be the Messiah. She said, huh, you must be that guy. Tell me. Why is it that you Jews say that those who worship God have to worship him on a mountain in Jerusalem? And we Samaritans say that those who worship God worship on this mountain called Gerizim. Tell me which one is right. So you don't misunderstand this. Jerusalem and Gerizim are not just mountains. They are whole theologies. Jerusalem and Gerizim are ideologies. They're not just places of worship. The moment Jesus commits himself to one of the two answers, she knows where to put him. Ah, that's where you belong, in that category. What he does is he transcends the argument. He says, (laughs) Woman, the time is coming when those who worship God will worship him neither in Jerusalem or in Gerizim. For God is spirit. And those who worship him 
find him in spirit and in truth. These are the kinds of people God seeks. Then he says, you, meaning your kind, you worship what you do not know. I underline that phrase in my Bible because people, I love theology. (laughs) I love ideas. But every time that I've met him and I've met him, I come away saying, I worship what I do not know. Right about the time I figure him out, he comes into my life in a powerful revelation. And I don't know him. So this... This has got me rereading this whole story again, asking myself, how have I put God into a box? If I hear Jesus right, he is saying, woman, worship is not defined by the categories you're using to define them. Worship is not about whether it's acceptable and unacceptable. Worship is not about orthodoxy. Every theologian in the room right now. Mm. (laughs) Worship is about whether or not you know him. Do you know him? I don't want to hear about the books you read. I want to see the effect of them. Have you met him? Do you know him? So I went through the story asking myself, God, how are ways that, uh, that maybe I have uh, created systems and structures that you fit inside? And then when I meet you, it's not what I expected. I'll just point out three because I'm a preacher. And if there's not three, the sermon has failed miserably. And this won't take long, I promise. The first one is, there comes a time when the God you go looking for finds you. Until that time, you will go off to Jerusalem or you'll go off to Gerizim. You will go wherever you need to go in order to find him because that's how you apprehend God. But then one day, you'll come walking by and he'll be sitting by a well waiting for you to show up. And all of a sudden, the hunt is over. 
C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book called Miracles. He says, it is always the dreadful thing for a human being to pass from God as an idea into the living God. There comes a time, he says, when the children who've been playing at burglar hear the sound of a real footstep in the hall. What if we found him? Or worse, what if he found us? We did not intend for it to come to this. There is a moment when the God you are looking for finds you. And when he does, he is never the God you imagined. He does not fit within your ethnicity, whoever you are. He is not captive to your ideology, whatever it is. He is not a poster child for things you believe in. He defies all theological categories. When you meet him, you have no language for this. Everything in you wants to run. And yet you want to stay. You feel ashamed and at the same time you feel beautiful and accepted and whole. Everything is restless and yet everything in you is peace. This is home. That's when you know he found you. And my question for you this morning is, have you ever had one of those encounters? Have you ever run into him? Have you had a night of fire? Second thing, whenever he finds you, he puts his finger on the most sensitive part of your life. It's a part you don't talk about. Everybody in the village knows you've been married five times. They know the man you're living with is not your husband. They're talking about you. That's why you went out to get water at noon. Every other woman got it early in the morning or late at night when it was cooler. But you went out at noon in the heat of the day because you didn't want to run into anybody. And there he was. And he put his finger on the part of your life that you're ashamed of. I think it's presumptuous to call the woman immoral. We don't know that. Only men could divorce back in those days, not women. She could have been abandoned five times for all we know. And the man she's living with right now was in order to eat. Once she's been abandoned, she either moves in with somebody or she becomes a prostitute, so she's chosen the lesser of two evils. Maybe that's the story. Whatever the story, she's ashamed. 
So she comes at noon. And there will come a time in your life when you meet him. And when you meet him, he will touch the part of you that you're most ashamed of. He'll go there. I worry for us sometimes, people. I think that we have been, uh, we have been so uh, busy trying to make God someone we can associate with that he is no longer unlike us. And therefore, he can never call us out. He's too busy understanding. But that place in your life that God touches, he touches with living water. The reason he brings it up is so it can be cleansed. This is why you feel welcome in the moment you feel most ashamed. And you finally have the nerve to say it. It's true. And these are the words. And right when you want to draw back, he gives you living water. And third... Once you drink the water that Jesus gives you in that encounter, it changes your whole identity every time. You'll be talking about this for the rest of your life. This will become a centerpiece for you. Other decisions can be made. They'll be made later. But this one was a turning point in your life. Like the woman, you turn around, you go back into the village and you start talking to the very people you were trying to avoid. And you say, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. Could this be the savior of the, wait for it, world? Could he belong to the whole world? <laughs> this is the Samaritan. people will listen to you because there is a power that comes out from you that is not your power. There's an anointing and a favor on your life and your words will not fall to the ground. I want this for you. But I can't make it happen. If I tried, it'd be, it'd be the work of a slave, not a, not a son. But I want this for you. I don't know whether you're uh, uh, head full of theology and philosophy and or whether you know almost nothing about religion. And I don't know whether you maybe grew up in the church and you haven't done many things wrong. Your daddy'd kill you. You'd break your mama's heart. Or whether you grew up a long way from the church with almost no interest in religion, but lately you've been coming to check it out. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what you're running from.
I don't know what the subject is where if I were to meet you and bring it up, you would be highly offended. You have no business going there, preacher. But I want you to meet him. Because when you meet him, he is not who you think he is. <laughs> he is so much other and so much more. And he will touch that place in your life and he will cleanse it. And when he cleanses it, he will set the rest of your life on fire. 